Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. The league, the rules, the punishments, the trash talk. It all fires up when you get the league back together. And while you've spent the offseason doing whatever non-fantasy football thing it is that you do, Yahoo mm. has spent the offseason making some serious upgrades to enhance your league experience. So when you hit that renew league button on yahoo.com slash fantasy football, your season will be legendary. Grab the league, set a draft date, and let the fantasy football flow. Renew your league now at yahoo.com slash binge mode fantasy football. Warning, binge mode contains adult content. That's right. The snake still needs to be milked. Someone's got to do it. So if that's not what you're into, please check out the press box. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're stacking up on single malt whiskey, horses love it. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. It is my very great pleasure to inform you that the Triwizard Tournament will be taking place at Hogwarts this year. You're joking! Said Fred Weasley loudly. The tension that had filled the hall ever since Moody's arrival suddenly broke. Nearly everyone laughed, and Dumbledore chuckled appreciatively. (laughs) I am not joking, Mr. Weasley. He said. Though now that you mention it, I did hear an excellent one over the summer about a troll hag and a leprechaun who'll go into a bar... Professor McGonagall cleared her throat loudly. Uh, no, maybe this is not the time, no. Said Dumbledore. Where was I? Ah, yes, the Triwizard Tournament. And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, mm-hmm. now that he's finished putting Isaac and Cram under the imperious curse. Just so they understand what it's like. You understand. <laughs> There's no other reason. It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Imperial. Mal, it <laughs> seems harsh maybe, but they've got to know. they got to know how to fight it. It's for their Don't own good. Don't they? The greater good. It's the greater good. And now it is time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're partial to Imperio Crucio or Avada Kedavra. You're a Crucio man. I am a Crucio man because (laughs) pain is part of life. (laughs) Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Imperial. Five points, five stars for binge mode only. <laughs> Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore. Join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to report teachers who claim it's okay to put you under mind control because Dumbledore wants you to know what it feels like. Dumbledore, another bad decision by my guy. <laughs> I feel like there's no way that's true, right? That he doesn't. That's yeah. my take. But could you honestly be Though, like if someone, if one of pretty your professors, brazen. yeah, is just out there saying that you're okay with it for like a year and it never gets back to you. That's, That's also what I'm bad. Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter, yes, we explored how the swirl of light and dark shaped chapter six through 10 of Gobble mm. of Fire. Now I want ice cream suddenly. I love a swirl. Could go for a black and white shake from Shake Shack. Ooh. And on today's episode, 
We're diving into chapters 11 through 15 of Goblet. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, deep on details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Oh, (laughs) girth. Taking the entire series into account from the moment the ship's mast pierces the Mm. lake's surface. Moist. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Wet lake. Oh my God. So sniff that sausage and pull out your flask because it's time to hear. Finally, after many interruptions and a lot of teasing about the Triwizard Tournament. Mal? Mad-Eye Moody? Isn't he that nutter? Your producer thinks very highly of Mad-Eye Moody. Uh, Yeah, well, Isaac collects plugs, doesn't he? (laughs) Thankfully, he also collects plot points, so let's offer up a very brief, brief refresher. Very brief. On what actually happened in Goblet Chapters 11 to 15 by climbing aboard this Scarlet Steam Engine and plot the Hogwarts Express. Now, with direct service to the pensive. (laughs) (laughs) After the World Cup. Harry, Ron, and Hermione head off to school. There they get their first glimpse of Mad-Eye Moody, who we will refer to as Bard-Eye Moody, the new defense against the dark arts teacher and learn that Hogwarts will host the first Triwizard Tournament in centuries. Moody, true to his reputation as a paranoid hard ass, teaches the kids unforgivable curses and uh, later places them temporarily under the imperious curse. Temporarily, I should add. You You know, just to show them what it's like. Totally innocent. Finally, in preparation for the tournament, the students from Bobaton and Durmstrang make their dramatic arrivals, accompanied by heads of school, Madame Maxime and Igor Kakarov, respectively. Jason. Yes. You are preoccupied, my dear. It's true. My inner eye sees past your brave face to the troubled soul within. And I regret to say that your worries are not baseless. See difficult times ahead for binge mode, the last most difficult. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme in chapters 11 through 15 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is Expanding Horizons. Chapter 11, Aboard the Hogwarts Express. Goblet is such a special book because it's the point in our story where the density of the material reaches a kind of critical mass. We now have an expansive list of characters that support our suddenly very teenage and very feeling that they are teenage core. We know more than ever about the ministry and its various departments. We have a panoply of magical items and methods of transportation, spells and curses, to which we will very soon add three more quite serious ones. All these things populate our world, and with them come plots and subplots expanding deliriously before our hungry eyes. Amos Diggory's head in the burrow's fireplace works this theme on a couple of different levels. One shows us yet another form of communication, which works instantaneously. Much better for emergencies, guys, than Owl Post, right? And for a quick bite of buttered toast. French. (laughs) (laughs) And what Amos has to say sheds more light on the inner workings of the ministry and it's all hands-on-deck response in the wake of the Death Eater attack on the Quidditch World Cup. Clearly, something else has happened and it's quite serious. Arthur, you've got to get over here, Amos says. And in fits and starts, we get the story. There's been another attack or so someone named Mad-Eye 
thinks. He's the <laughs> victim, it seems here, from the book again. Says he heard an intruder in his yard. Says he was creeping toward the house, but was ambushed by his dustbins. Notable. <laughs> we'll learn in Barty Jr.'s confession that the swap had already taken place, and this was cover. Yes. My dude in the suitcase already. <laughs> this cover works, though, because... Our soon-to-be-named Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher is apparently a jumpy guy. Right. Again, from the book, I bet he leapt out of bed and started jinxing everything he could reach through the window, Amos says. Like most of the ministry figures we've met, Amos is concerned about the mounting toll of bad press. Not whether Death Eaters actually came for the dude. Right. Who is an experienced horror, as everyone says, but they're just dismissing him out of hand, even though, yes, he's a fake guy in its cover. Still, <laughs> they're more concerned with, man, the last thing we need is Rita Skeeter getting hold of this about some whacked out wizard just firing curses in every direction. We can't let that happen. Imagine if Rita had Twitter and could just fire these takes out without delay. I know. My goodness. Again, I will point out. <laughs> oh, no. The only thing keeping the ministry on their toes at this point in time is Rita Skeeter. She's terrible. But she's the only reason they're like trying to do anything correctly. I'm excited to track over the course of Goblet your running tally of definite <laughs> bad people that you're standing for. So far, I, listen, we're at I think Voldemort, she's awful. the Dursleys. I, I'm not standing Rita. for Voldemort. You're going to have some heavy pro Barty Jr. takes <laughs> later in this episode. So excited. What a time. We find out more about this Mad Eye fellow as the Weasleys talk about what they've just heard. Isn't he that nutter? Says George, who, you know, can always count on the Weasley twins for their. Sensitive observations. Molly points out that Arthur really respects Mad-Eye. And then we get some uh, true perspective and wisdom from Fred. Yeah, well, dad collects plugs, doesn't he? Birds of a feather. <laughs> I know. It's like a really good point. But Molly is not the only one offering perspective. Moody was a great wizard in his time, says Bill. He's an old friend of Dumbledore, isn't he? Asks Charlie. Finally, Harry, who is so often the stand-in for the reader, whose knowledge is growing and horizons are expanding right along with our protagonist, asks what we're all dying to know. Who is this fucker? Yeah. Who is Mad-Eye Moody? Spill. Only one of the best dark wizard hunters there ever was, Charlie tells Harry. A top-level Auror who filled Azkaban's cells with baddies. More on Aurors in today's restricted section. That kind of success, though, came with a cost. Quote, he made himself loads of enemies, though, Charlie says. The families of people he caught, mainly. And I heard he's been getting really paranoid in his old age. Doesn't trust anyone anymore. Sees dark wizards everywhere. This, we gauge very quickly, has made Moody something of a punchline, a yeah. running joke in the wizarding world. But some horizons only expand on delay. It'll take the course of the entire book, the school year, for us and Harry and other people to realize that Moody's paranoia, not so misplaced after <laughs> no, all. No, no, not at all. Homie's about to spend an entire school year in his own trunk, only kept alive, we have to remember, so that he can be interrogated about his own life and so that his hair can continue to fuel the polyjuice potion that's being used to impersonate him. Extremely tough stuff. Yeah. Maybe we should be uh, vigilant at huge sporting events which gather wizards and witches from all around the world. Do you think we should maybe be vigilant in cases like that? Whatever. We've got muggles to obliviate. <laughs> These chapters are seeded with hints and foreshadowing that prime us for new things, new characters, new plots, new horizons. There's also, remember, that top secret thing, you know, the one Percy couldn't help but hint about and that Ludo almost spilled completely about. Yes. Now at King's Cross, <laughs> Charlie and Bill are getting in on the act. I might be seeing you all sooner than you think, <laughs> Charlie says, driving Fred and George totally insane. You'll see, he says. Then it's Bill's turn. 
You're going to have an interesting year, said Bill, his eyes twinkling. I might even get time off to come and watch a bit of it. A bit of what? Said Ron. Who else knows something we don't know? How about the MILF, guys? (laughs) MILF Weasley. I'd invite you for Christmas, but, well, I expect you are going to want to stay at Hogwarts. What with one thing and another. Molly drops another morsel about rules to something that have apparently been changed. Our apologies to Hagrid. Again, I mentioned this last episode. (laughs) Hagrid, I'm sorry. Apparently, everyone in this world cannot help themselves. In chapter nine, The Dark Mark, we got our first suggestion of other wizarding schools beyond Hogwarts when Harry observed a student speaking French and Hermione told him and us about Bobaton. Aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine, we hear tell of yet another school with a more ominous bent from none other than Draco. Why am I not expelled? Why are my parents not in jail, Malfoy? Why are they not in jail? <laughs> Draco says, Father actually considered sending me to Durmstrang rather than Hogwarts, you know. Our friends overhear Malfoy telling his lackeys this through a crack in a train compartment door. Hmm, wonder why. Why would this have been appealing to the Malfoy clan? Draco continues, Father says Durmstrang takes a far more sensible line than Hogwarts about the dark arts. Durmstrang students actually learn them, not just the defense rubbish we do. Ah, well, you're going to love your lessons this year, bud. <laughs> I know. I'm sure that something tells me that young Draco is getting plenty of education in the dark arts at home. Naturally, uh, the Malfoy clan would be tempted by following in the footsteps of young Grindelwald. Yeah. Ron, always an inquisitive fellow. Totally. Loves geography. Not no- loves international relations. A noted student. <laughs> Asks, where's Durmstrang? And Hermione, who has, of course, studied these places as much as possible, drops a truly tantalizing nugget that changes the way we think, not only about magical education, but about the entire setup of the magical world itself. Where's Durmstrang? No one knows. Naturally, these magical schools are going to be competing. There's a limited pool of students, all sorts of magical secrets. They're rivals, and they want to guard what's theirs. Many readers— have probably wondered since the beginning of this story whether there are other places like Hogwarts out there. Harry never wondered this, of course, but many readers probably did. How Hogwarts and other magical dwellings stay out of view of muggle kind. J.K. Rowling, through Hermione, fleshes out more aspects of this and thus the entire magical world. When Ron asks how Durmstrang could hide a castle, it's got to be as big as Hogwarts. Hermione's like, dude, Hogwarts is fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) This is a great moment because we get such insight, but also such humor. She says, everyone knows that. Well, everyone who's read Hogwarts, a history anyway. And Ron says, just you then. (laughs) (laughs) Keep them jokes, Ron, while Hermione's saving everyone's ass again. Again and again. Hermione explains about the repelling charms that keep muggles away. Quote, if a muggle looks at it, all they see is a moldering old ruin with a sign over the entrance saying, danger, do not enter, unsafe. Just a little side note here. No young muggle would see that and actually walk like, away. Yeah, a great Be place like, to smoke weed. Yeah. Like, like, looks pass, like we're going there. The pipe. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Keeping those with magical abilities away is, of course, a bit more involved. But Hermione has that information for us as well, telling us for the first time about places that are unplottable, which sets the stage very nicely for our stay at 12 Grimald Place in Order of the Phoenix. But while horizons are steadily expanding, reveals come sooner for some and later for others. Everyone, it seems, knows what the top secret event is, except our friends Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Are you going to enter? Malfoy says, who's just 
been mocking Ron's extremely frilly and very old dress robes. Here's my thing on that. Ron, if you're that ashamed of them, don't pull them out of all the things. Just leave cover them. Pig's also, cage. Yeah, and also leave them home. Like, just be like- Go Starkers, I'm, like you threatened to. I'm not taking these. Love Harry just being like, oh, it's too bad you can't buy another set of dress robes. I mean, let's <laughs> never forget that when he gives all the money to Fred and George, the one thing he says is buy Ron some new dress robes. Like, what was stopping him from doing that right now? What is stopping him from doing that right now? Well, he already gave him the omnioculars, and so he said no Christmas presents for a decade. <laughs> That's right, of course. I suppose you will, Potter. You never miss a chance to show off, do you, Draco? I, I love that line. <laughs> Either explain what you're on about or go away, Hermione says testily while reading a book. Don't tell me you don't know, he says delightedly. You've got a father and a brother at the ministry and you don't even know. My God, my father told me about it ages ago. <laughs> Oh, Why has no one stomped this guy? Again, I say again. Man, it's our, coming, bud. Our friends wait for chapter it's 13. True. Our, and to be fair, Hermione has has slapped that ass. But missed that opportunity, guys, in the darkness and the chaos of the World Cup to really, really fuck this kid up. Gotta say, one of your all-time takes is Harry Ron and Hermione should have murdered Draco in the shelter. No, I'm wood. not saying they should have murdered him, but they really should have kicked his ass like hard. <laughs> Chapter 12, the Triwizard Tournament. Aha. With our natural tendency to focus on Harry, Ron, and Hermione, it is very easy to overlook the incoming first years and their expanding horizons. Among the new students this year is Colin Creese. This is a wonderful little scene. It's beautiful. Little brother Dennis. Little D fell into the lake on the way over from the train, and remember, it's pouring. Quote, he looked positively delighted about it. Keep in mind, the Creevies yes. are muggle-borns. And after so much of Malfoy's prejudice and filth in recent books, it is truly wonderful to get a moment like this, a pure, unadulterated reminder of what discovering magic, what entering the magical world can mean for someone who didn't always know it existed. This also leads to a subtle moment, but a very emblematic one, for Hagrid's innate kindness. Quote, all of them were shivering with a combination of cold and nerves as they filed along the staff table and came to a halt in a line facing the rest of the school. All of them except the smallest of the lot. This is Dennis, a boy with mousy hair who was wrapped in what Harry recognized as Hagrid's moleskin overcoat. The Colin Dennis bit also gives us another small but notable bit of world expansion regarding siblings. Mm. Harry asks if siblings are usually in the same house, and Hermione says, well, actually, no, not always. <laughs> the Patil twins, for one, are not. One in Gryffindor, one in Ravenclaw. Also a nice subtle reintroduction of these characters here ahead of their Yule Ball inclusion. And of course, this will prove key in another character's arc. Sirius, who we will learn in Order of the Phoenix, came from a long line of Slytherins, broke away to join Gryffindor and become his own man. Small details like this really fill out the fabric of the world, and they also serve to remind us of how much Harry still has to learn. He's no longer an 11-year-old boy who's just realizing that magic is real. He's entering his fourth year. As Jason said earlier, he's a proper teenager now. But he grew up away from all of this, and so much of it is still strange and new to him. So much of it is still a mystery, not even waiting to be solved, yeah. but waiting to be discovered in the first place. The sorting ceremony is interesting to consider in the context of our theme. It's at once 
and expanding of horizons as students are introduced to their magical education, taking their first steps into a wider magical world. And it's also a diminishing of them as the youngsters are separated from their peers. These divisions, as always, remind us of the danger of shrinking horizons, including for Harry, who thinks upon watching the first youngster sword into Slytherin from the book, Harry wondered whether Baddock knew that Slytherin House had turned out more dark witches and wizards than any other. Harry, why don't you just go tell him? <laughs> Harry, like so many others at Hogwarts, could stand to expand his horizons when it comes to lumping every person in one house under a tainted umbrella. Not all Slytherins. Harry, of course, <laughs> has missed every sorting since his own through no real fault of his. In year two, remember Dobby blocked the entrance to platform nine and three quarters, so Harry and Ron arrived late via the Ford Anglia, crashing into the Whomping Willow. In year three, Harry blacked out because of the Dementor on the Express, leading him to miss the ceremony. So Harry learned something new about this event, even after all these years. The song changes every single year. This will, of course, be hugely important in order when we get what is the iconic oh, dark man. sorting hat song? Can't wait. Iconic and chilling. Can't wait. Can't wait for that. Not all expanding horizons are pleasant, of course. When nearly headless Nick tells the Gryffindor kids that the feast almost didn't come together because of a peeves meltdown that, quote, terrified the house elves out of their wits, Hermione knocks over her goblet in shock. Winky's experience at the Quidditch World Cup totally unmoored Hermione, who, as a just and noble and kind-hearted person, truly cannot stand the idea of systemic oppression. That exposure awoke within her a desire to affect change, to really do good. Never, however, did she realize that she and everyone around her was complicit, some knowingly, some unknowingly, in the house elf system. There are house elves here, she said, staring horror-struck at nearly headless Nick. Here at Hogwarts, we think of Hermione, who's always ready with a fact from Hogwarts A History or some other book, as knowing everything about the castle and everything about, well, Really, everything. But this stuns her. And that is telling because part of the horror of what's happening to the house elves in the magical world is that so few people are forced to confront it. And that fewer people care once they are. Nick tells Hermione that there are more house elves at Hogwarts than in any dwelling in Britain. More than 100. She says she's never seen them. And he sickeningly says that that's the mark of a good house elf. Hermione presses on. But they get paid. They get holidays, don't they? And, and sick leave and pensions and everything. And Nick greets that with a chortle. She pushes away her plate, breathing very hard through her nose. That's what made this dinner, she says, slave labor. And she refuses to eat another bite. This is a extremely rude awakening about what goes on at their cherished castle. And an important reminder that trust with a person or a place or a very idea is tenuous. The Hermione isn't eating. The feast continues. And at long last, Dumbledore stands to speak. He announces that, perish the thought. No Quidditch this year, guys. Oh, boy. Because this is due to an event that will be starting in October and continuing throughout the school year. I have a great pleasure in announcing that this year at Hogwarts, but just what he has great pleasure in announcing, we have to wait because at that precise moment, there's a crack of thunder (laughs) and the doors of the hall burst open, giving us one of the myriad great payoffs in this chapter. Here we get our first and long-awaited glimpse of Mad-Eye Moody. Yes. Or so we think. The real Mad-Eye, as we'll learn in the book's stunning conclusion, got got, is currently sitting Shiva for himself in a suitcase, shitting his pants, and probably being unable to disappear. How do you? How does that work in a suitcase? I have to assume that Barty's clean enough to keep it Come fresh. On. You think? Yeah. Because he's got to go in there to interrogate him and to get the hair. It's like, oh my for God. For his own good, he wants it to yeah. be spring breeze in is, there. As we just noted, Barty Jr., 
impersonating Mad-Eye with the aid of Polyjuice. Polyjuice means it's impossible to tell, and that means that what we're seeing, at least, is moody, and the visual is thrilling from the book. The lightning had thrown the man's face into sharp relief, and it was a face unlike any Harry had ever seen. It looked as though it had been carved out of weathered wood by someone who had only the vaguest idea of what human faces are supposed to look like and was none too skilled with a chisel. Such a good line. It's great. Every (laughs) inch of skin seemed to be scarred. The mouth looked like a diagonal gash and a large chunk of the nose was missing. But that's not all, folks. No. The book continues. It was the man's eyes that made him frightening. One of them was small, dark, and beady. The other was large, round as a coin, and a vivid electric blue. The blue eye was moving ceaselessly without blinking, rolling up, down, and from side to side, quite independently of the normal eye. May I introduce our new defense against the dark arts teacher, said Dumbledore brightly into the silence. Professor Moody. The students are utterly transfixed. They've never seen anyone who looks like this. Here in the physical embodiment of this man is seemingly the battle between light and dark. Here's a guy that's been through the wars and you can see it on his face. Hermione pieces together that this man is the man that Arthur went to help that morning. Harry spies a wooden leg below the table as Moody from the book reached again into his traveling cloak, pulled out a hip flask, and took a long draft from it. This, of course, is his supply of polyjuice. What could do this to a man? What could make him look this way and act the way we know that he acts from hearsay? They want to know. They want their horizons to expand, even though they probably don't. And if that's all not startling enough, what about the other oft-hinted-at top-secret thing that seemingly everyone except Harry, Ron, and Hermione knows about? Dumbledore resumes his announcement and reveals at last that the Triwizard Tournament is back. After a centuries-long absence and it's being held at Hogwarts, Fred Weasley speaking on behalf of the masses. You're joking! <laughs> Great moment where Dumbledore's like, I'm not, though. I did hear a good one the other day. And then McGonagall's like, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Dumbledore explains, quote, The Triwizard Tournament was first established some 700 years ago as a friendly competition between the three largest European schools of wizardry, Hogwarts, Bobaton, and Durmstrang. Champion was selected to represent each school, and the three champions competed in three magical tasks. Something underwater? The schools took it in turns to host the tournament once every five years, and it was generally agreed to be a most excellent way of establishing ties between young witches and wizards of different nationalities. Until, that is, the death toll mounted so high that the tournament was discontinued. The no safer place just got so much no safer, guys. (laughs) Did I hear death toll? (laughs) Hermione basically asks exactly that. She is extremely alarmed, but she's in the minority here. Most of the students are totally wrapped. They are enthralled. This is telling. Kids are drawn to intrigue and danger in real life all the time. Magical kids who know what kind of truly exceptional possibilities are out there waiting to be unearthed. They don't see danger when they're hearing this. They see the chance for an amazing adventure. They see the opportunity to expand beyond the typical offerings of another school year. And just in case you think the ministry is completely inept, what with the lack of security at the World Cup and the seemingly non-existent investigation into the identities of the Death Eaters who attacked the event and Arthur Weasley's, ooh, I gotta go to bed, guys, (laughs) response in the wake of said attack Hold your Thestrals because they're very good at scheduling tournaments, at least. That they can do. (laughs) Dumbledore from the book. There have been several attempts over the centuries to reinstate the tournament, none of which has been very successful. However, our own Department of International Magical Cooperation and Magical Games and Sports have decided the time is ripe for another attempt. We have worked 
hard over the summer to ensure that this time no champion will find himself <laughs> or herself in mortal danger. Big round of applause for Ludo, literal Bagman, Bagman, and the crew, not counting Bertha <laughs> Jorkins, who's dead. They really got it done. <laughs> oh, man. Poor fucking Bertha. Yeah. The we'll look for her one of these days, guys. <laughs> She'll turn up. She'll turn up. Mark my words. Yeah. The Bobaton and Durbstrang heads and their short list of contenders we learn will be arriving in October when, quote, an impartial judge will decide which students are most worthy to compete for the Triwizard Cup, the glory of their school, and a thousand galleons personal prize money. Whoa. The tournament might be open to students from the three elite European magical schools, but not all students, Dumbledore reveals. Even after all the work to make this tournament less, uh, you know, fatal. It's still going to be extremely dangerous. It's still going to require such an advanced level of magical skill that they have decided only students who are of age in the magical world, which is to say 17 or older, may compete. Think about this from the student's perspective. For a brief, beautiful moment, eternal glory seemed possible. Little Dennis Creevy is like, here I I come, guys. (laughs) (laughs) The horizons expanded not only to include the return of the tournament, thrilling enough, but to allow each student to imagine becoming Hogwarts champion, to think about experiencing the wonder and the splendor of participating in those tasks, of reaping the pride of victory, and of course, of winning that 1000 galleon prize money. And then it's gone for the bulk of the people in the Great Hall, including Fred and George, who are distressed. (laughs) Extremely distressed. They're not stopping me entering, said Fred stubbornly. The twins begin to briefly discuss the possibility of using an aging potion to get around the restriction, even though Dumbledore has said that he, the greatest wizard of all time, will personally assure that no one gets around the age limit. Another L for my guy coming. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 13, Mad-Eye Moody. Ah, first day of class, always a special time. One of the sincere joys of the later, longer Harry Potter books as we get to spend more time in lessons and get exposed to new magic and new ideas. Love it. The first herbology lesson of term introduces us to the Bubba Tuber. Clearly a stand-in for teenage acne, which their pus notably helps treat, but also an undeniable (laughs) masturbation metaphor. Sorry, Professor, you said we squeeze the swollen pulsating cylinder until the prized liquid comes out. Am I getting this correctly? Hmm. Okay. Wonderful. In care of magical creatures, as is so often the case with Hagrid, our horizons expand to reveal some fresh horror. In this case, the blast ended scroots. In the magical world, where danger abounds, one thing that you do really want to be able to trust, to count on, is the adults at least knowing what's going on, knowing more than you do. So no shade at our dude Hagrid, who we love. We really cherish Hagrid. He is great. But it's not exactly reassuring that he basically cops to knowing nothing about the screws. It's a tough, tough look from him. (laughs) They look like pale, slimy, shellless lobsters with legs in odd places and no discernible head. This is horrifying. Harry notes, observes to him, you know, his internal monologue. They smell like rotting fish. Why are we doing this, Hagrid? (laughs) Thank God those lessons are outside. They're six inches long for now. Sparks fly out. They shoot forward. Hagrid says they just hatched. Quote, so you'll be able to raise them yourselves. Why? Malfoy asks just that. Why would we want to? It's like, I hate to side with What do they do? Hagrid then says, I don't know what these guys eat. Let's find out together. (laughs) 
Very tough stuff here. Yes. In Divination, we pick up right where we left off with Trelawney obsessing over Harry's looming death. Missed you, boo. You are preoccupied, my dear, she said mournfully to Harry. My inner eyes is past your brave face to the troubled soul within. And I regret to say that your worries are not baseless. I see difficult times ahead for you, alas. Most difficult. I fear the thing you dread will indeed come to pass, and perhaps sooner than you think. Harry's become pretty adept at shaking off these proclamations during his third year, but this hits him. His horizons have expanded because of Trelawney's prediction, which Harry firmly believes is coming true, and because of what he's witnessed in his dream and because of what transpired at the Cup. It's not as easy to shake off harbingers like this when you're already so full of foreboding and for good reason. He just literally just saw in a dream Voldemort discussing murdering him. So it's not, you know. Yeah, that's going to stick. Literal tough stuff. (laughs) Between classes, Malfoy and his goons stop Ron in the hall. Arthur's in the paper again. Hey, but his name is wrong. Right. It's not good news. Rita, that scoundrel, doesn't even have his name right. She's referring to him as Arnold. (laughs) Malfoy says, imagine them not even getting his name right, Weasley. It's almost as though he's a complete (laughs) non-entity. Isn't it? These are solid burns from Draco, who, again, should have been stomped out in the woods at the cup. He was saying racist shit. It's not even like it was just nothing. Like they walk up behind him and hit him with a rock. He was saying awful things. He's a terrible guy. Yes. A terrible guy. Arthur, we learn, had to modify several memories after the police, (laughs) the please men, got involved in Moody's dustbin dust-up. Ron is shaking with fury as this is playing out. And Harry, who's always a good pal, has Ron's back. He begins to talk shit, this time about Malfoy's mother. That's a no-fly zone for Malfoy. Harry hears a bang, and he feels something hot on his cheek. And before he can even grab his wand to fire a spell back, we hear, Oh, no, you don't, laddie! (laughs) Harry spins around. And he sees Moody, his wand out, pointing at a shivering pure white ferret on the floor. Quote, there was a terrified silence in the entrance hall. Moody has transfigured Malfoy into a ferret, and he is bouncing him up and down in the air, slamming him onto the floor. This is actually extremely, extremely unsettling. McGonagall mercifully intervenes, restoring Malfoy and sternly reminding Moody that Hogwarts professors never use transfiguration as a punishment. Surely Dumbledore told you that. Right. He might have mentioned it. He might have mentioned it. By the way, I'm going to Imperio my kids. (laughs) Now, Harry and his peers have seen some shit where their teachers are concerned. Lockhart was a dangerous fraud who tried to wipe their memories. Hagrid, again, our guy who we love. Love him. Wound up at a ministry hearing because of one of his lessons. Voldemort, for crying out loud, was sticking out of their defense against the dark arts teacher's head in year one. Solid teacher, by the way. (laughs) Solid lesson plan for Voldemort. (laughs) Meticulous attention to detail when he's sketching out a syllabus. But they have never seen anything like this. They're witnessing a teacher, someone who is supposed to be a trusted authority figure, literally abusing a student in plain sight for all to see. Ron is delighted by this. Yes. He tells Hermione not to ruin the best moment of his life. (laughs) And look, surely reading this, there's some part of you that has some inclination to feel the way Ron does because of what a shit show, what a horrible person Malfoy is. But think about what is really happening here. Think about what we are witnessing. Nothing about this is okay. 
And even if Harry or others feel joy at Malfoy getting his comeuppance, they also have to feel on some level, and Hermione thankfully voices this, that what they just witnessed was dangerous and alarming, and that the man doing it might be capable of things they've never seen. Oh, tell me about it. (laughs) That's both terrifying and, for these youngsters, thrilling. Later, the twins and Lee Jordan sit down and gush about Moody. How cool is he? Beyond cool. Super cool. Harry asks what the lesson was like. Fred and George and Lee exchanged looks full of meaning. Never had a lesson like it, said Fred. He knows, man, said Lee. Knows what, said Ron. Knows what it's like to be out there doing it, said George impressively. Doing what, said Harry. Fighting the dark arts, said Fred. He's seen it all, said George. Amazing, said Lee. Ron dived into his bag for his schedule. We haven't got him till Thursday, he said in a disappointed voice. Moody's methods might be anywhere from... (laughs) misguided to outright abusive to truly ominous. But the students aren't thinking about that. They see someone who can change the way they think about the world and give them a little bit of power as well. Listen, you learn how to put someone under your control. That's bad. It's also kind of thrilling. Real purple man vibe from you right I'm now. just saying, like you learn, <laughs> you if someone's just shown you the arsenal, that's undoubtedly seductive. All right, Kilgrave, let's move on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken a turn. Chapter 14, The Unforgivable Curses. Ah. Another fucking banger. Man, first- A I, Hall of Fame chapter. I will say first time reading this, I had, she introduces so much that was either hinted at or that takes you completely by surprise. And I was not prepared to be like, here's the three worst things you can do to someone magically. I know. Oh. It's wild and totally enthralling. And it's good that you mentioned right off the top the three worst things you can do. Because in retrospect- Maybe we should have known (laughs) that Mad-Eye Moody was really a dark wizard in disguise. Maybe it should have been a tell when he decided at all, but particularly on day one of class. Day one. To teach the three worst curses to children. (laughs) Just maybe. (laughs) It seems a lot. It's a lot. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are so excited for their first lesson with him because it's all they've heard about. Oh, this guy. He's seen it. He's done it. He's cool. Wait till you're there. He's really been there. They're there now, and they're so excited they grab front row seats. Now, we don't think of Harry and Ron as being front row seats students. They're definitely not. This is an event for them. And Moody does not disappoint. He opens by saying that he's heard from Lupin, which is just a great little—I love that Lupin's like, here's what they've learned. Right. That is wonderful. He's heard from Lupin about the dark creatures that this class is current on, but he's also realized that they are, quote, Behind, very behind on dealing with curses. And he intends to fix that. Oh, oh, does he? Quote, I'm here to bring you up to scratch on what wizards can do to each other. This is disturbing language. This is the kind of idea that embeds itself instantly in your brain. What wizards can do to each other. Now, Harry, of course, has had to confront those realities many times when he was a baby. When he faced Quirldemort in his first year, when he hung out with his good friend Tom in the Chamber Tom, of Secrets. help me, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> when he learned the truth of Pettigrew's identity in Prisoner of Azkaban, every time the Dementors draw close to him in his dreams, he's had to constantly confront the fact that people hurt each other. Even in the Muggle world, yes. where he grew up amid disinterest and neglect. But we have to assume, especially given things like Ron not being able to recognize the dark mark and the many other signs we've gotten to date in the story about the 
lack of active post-Wizarding World discussion that for many of the students in that room, not Harry, not Neville, but many of them, hearing this is an instant horizon expander. Plenty of these students we will learn over the course of the story have been touched by Voldemort in some way, but not all of them have had to face it in the way that Harry has. And hearing this forces them not just to consider new types of magic, but to consider new elements, new aspects of human nature. After a brief interlude with Ron, Rowling reminds us that nothing gold can stay when it comes to the defense against the dark arts position, which is jinxed. Mad-Eye says, I'm only staying for one year as a favor to Dumbledore, and then gets right to it. He says, now according to the Ministry of Magic, I'm supposed to teach you counter curses and leave it at that. I'm not supposed to show you what illegal dark curses look like until you're in the sixth year. You're not supposed to be old enough to deal with it till then. But Professor Dumbledore is going to hire opinion of your nerves. He reckons you can cope. And I say, the sooner you know what you're up against, the better. How are you supposed to defend yourself against something you've never seen? Talk about expanding horizons, guys. <laughs> the last line is of enormous importance. How are you supposed to defend yourself against something you've never seen? In the magical world, as in life, threats aren't always clear. They don't announce themselves. You have to prepare for things you can't even anticipate. You have to prepare for the idea of evil. And I think this is of particular importance in a wizarding world where they cannot even utter the name of the enemy they face. Right. The gravity of the lesson and the horrific nature of the curses is apparent even just using them on spiders, which is what Moody does. First up, the Imperious Curse, which places the victim under the spellcaster's control. Ron offers up that answer. And Moody's not surprised. He notes that Arthur, a ministry employee, would know all about it. Quote, years back, there were a lot of witches and wizards being controlled by the Imperious Curse, said Moody, and Harry knew he was talking about the days in which Voldemort had been all-powerful. Some job for the ministry, trying to sort out who was being forced to act and who was acting of their own free will. Love the ministry. They're working hard on it day and night to separate the wheat from the chaff. Moody drills down into the practical implementation. Imperio, he shouts, and the spider does his bidding. It even does a tap dance. Everyone's laughing, except Moody. And then we get an absolutely chilling line. The kind of line that instantly shifts perspective. Think it's funny, do you? He growled. You'd like it, would you, if I did it to you? Now he's about to. But that's beside the point right now. The laughter dies. Total control, he says. I could make it jump out the window, drown itself, throw itself down one of your throats. It is terrifying enough to think about what other people might do out there in the world. But now, these 14-year-old children have to face another chilling prospect. It's not just what other people can do. It's what they can make you do. Yes. And it can be anyone. It can be a stranger. It can be your sworn rival. It can be, as we'll learn from Barty in time, your own father. Thankfully, Moody doesn't only employ fear tactics. He teaches hope and focused growth. The Imperious Curse can be fought, he says, and I'll be teaching you how, but it takes real strength of character, and not everyone's got it. Better avoid being hit with it if you can. Constant vigilance, he barked, (laughs) and everyone jumped. This is particularly rich to contemplate in hindsight, knowing that Barty Jr. was able to impersonate Moody in the first place because he fought off his father's Imperious Curse and rejoined his master. Next, the Cruciatus Curse. Your favorite. Which inflicts pain beyond measure. Moody asks for volunteers again, and though Hermione raises her hand once more, he calls on Neville. 
for a particularly chilling reason. There's one, the Cruciatus Curse, Neville said in a small but distinct voice. Then Moody looked at him intently. Your name's Longbottom. Neville certainly is thinking of his parents, who we will learn later in the book, were tortured into madness by this curse. Bardai Moody certainly is thinking of having used this along with Bellatrix, Rodolphus, and Rabastan Lestrange on Neville's parents after the fall of Voldemort. After the fall. That's the chilling thing. Voldemort was gone. Everybody had relaxed. And then this curse is used on Neville's parents. Moody enlarges the next spider in his jar so that they can properly see the effects. And then he mutters Crucio. And the spider's legs bend in. It rolls and twitches in pain. No sound came from it, but Harry was sure that if it could have given voice, it would have been screaming. Hermione, shaken, screams, stop. She's looking at Neville, whose hands are clenched on the desk. Quote, his knuckles white, his eyes wide and horrified. Neville is watching at long last. The horrors that ripped his parents out of his life. Pain, said Moody softly. That one was very popular once, too. Oh, honestly, like, just right now hearing you talk about it gives me a chill. That is... And they say they're kids' books. Lastly, the dreaded killing curse, which strikes down its victims in a flash of green light, a rush of sound. Without leaving a mark, they just drop dead. Hermione raises her hand for this one and whispers, Avada Kedavra. Good thing he notes later, by the way, that uh, you need a powerful bit of magic behind it, so they wouldn't even give him a nosebleed (laughs) if they tried. You're just letting them say it. Can I try? (laughs) (laughs) The professor smiles. As he replies, yes, the last and the worst of Vatikadavra, the killing curse. He takes out the final spider. Quote, Moody raised his wand and Harry felt a sudden thrill of foreboding. Vatikadavra, Moody roared. There was a flash of blinding green light and a rushing sound as though a vast invisible something was soaring through the air. Instantaneously, the spider rolled over onto its back, unmarked but unmistakably dead. That is the green light that Harry has seen in his dreams and that he's seen when the Dementors draw near and he's forced to relive his parents' death. This is the rushing sound of the veil that he'll confront in the death room in the Department of Mysteries, the veil that claims Sirius, the veil that calls to Harry. And then we get another utterly unnerving moment. Not nice, Moody said calmly. Not pleasant, and there's no countercurse. There's no blocking it. Only one known person has ever survived it and he's sitting right in front of me. You feel the weight of the world crashing down on Harry in that moment. You know, everybody knows that Harry's special. He's famous for the exact moment that Moody is currently describing, but there's something about hearing that. There's something about seeing the killing curse in action and understanding in a new and really visceral way what Harry beat that changes everyone's perspective, including his own from the book. So that was how his parents had died exactly like that spider. Had they been unblemished and unmarked too? He wonders if they also had simply just seen this flash of green light and heard the rush of speeding death. And that was it. That was their last moment. Quote, Harry had been picturing his parents' deaths over and over again for three years now. He had, of course, harped on this before. He knows certain details from his encounters with the Dementors, from his conversations with people. But this Seeing the curse used is new information. This is a new horizon. As Moody says, now if there's no counter curse, why am I showing you? Because you've got to know, you've got to appreciate what the worst is. You don't want to find yourself in a situation where you're facing it. Constant vigilance! 
the whole class jumps again. Their horizons, in other words, need to expand. He tells them that these three curses are called unforgivable curses and that using any on a fellow human being as he is about to do in a few weeks when he does it on the entire class (laughs) can earn you a life sentence in Azkaban. He continues, that's what you're up against. That's what I've got to teach you to fight. You need preparing. You need arming. Most of all, you need to practice constant, never-ceasing vigilance. He may really be a deranged murderer, but this is essential life-altering advice. And it's interesting to consider why he's giving it. He teaches them a lot. I think, you know. (laughs) He actually does. Not everyone, though, is leaving the room feeling inspired. Harry, in particular, feels that it's strange that most people are talking about the lesson, quote, as though it had been some sort of spectacular show. Yeah. But he hadn't found it very entertaining. Of course not, given his connection to what he just witnessed. The killing curse haunts Harry and... He thinks he harps on his parents trying desperately to save his life, the way that they sacrificed themselves for the barest glimmer of hope that their son might live. And there's this just cringeworthy moment when everyone's debriefing after the fact, and Ron, who's riding high on the buzz of what he's witnessed, talks about the way the spider, quote, just died, just snuffed it. And he falls silent when he looks at Harry's face. Hermione was affected as well. After class, she hurries Harry and Ron to Neville, who's alone and, quote, staring at the stone wall opposite him with the same horrified, wide-eyed look. And he speaks, when he speaks, his voice is higher than usual for Harry and Neville both. That lesson made something abstract, concrete, and visceral in a way that they'll never be able to forget. This new horizon has opened old wounds. It's not that they never thought about what happened to their parents, The opposite is true. But there's a difference between wondering and knowing kind of at a remove and watching it happen, even to a spider, even to another creature. Watching that spider suffer, even though it was only a spider, obviously shook Harry and shook Neville. Even Hermione felt it. Mad-Eye approaches and tells Neville, why don't you come to my office for tea, where Harry learns later in his dormitory that Moody gave him a book, Magical Water Plants of the Mediterranean. And Neville says, apparently Professor Sprout told Professor Moody I'm really good at herbology, Neville said. And there was a faint note of pride in his voice that Harry had rarely heard before. He thought I'd like this. Harry thinks to himself that it's the sort of thing Lupin would have done. And that's, in retrospect, one of the truly twisted, complex things to consider about this book is that Neville gets so much strength and pride from a man who tortured his family, took part in the torture of his family. What's more, here is perhaps the Dark Lord's most faithful and it would seem resourceful servant, certainly probing the psyches of the children of Voldemort's victims, using their curiosity and natural reaction to expanded horizons against them, to seduce them in a way. There are various long cons at work here, all with an overarching strategy. We'll learn that Mad-Eye, Barty in disguise, gave Neville the book in order to help Harry get through the second task of the tournament, specifically so Voldemort could murder Harry at the place and time of his own choosing. Yikes. Yikes. The Unforgivable Curses lesson and the impact of that lesson is so significant that it is really easy to forget that anything else happens in this chapter. Yes. But other stuff does happen. Specifically, Hermione and Spew. I'm proud of my girl. Me too. It's Spew time. Now, Hermione has always been... (laughs) Where's the (laughs) boo-boo (laughs) too? Hermione's always been bossy. She's always been a take command kind of gal. She knows her stuff. She's not afraid to say so. Part of her charm. In Azkaban, she really, really found her confidence. Yeah. Mouthing off to Trelawney. Yes. 
slapping Draco. What did the five fingers say to Draco's face? (laughs) Now, Hermione's expanding horizons are political, social justice. She sees the injustice of the house off system and has to do something about it. She has to act. She can't believe other people, legions of people before her haven't. And that means educating others. Enter SPEW. Spew. (laughs) Tough acronym, guys. She'll say it's not spew, but it's spew. The Society for the Promotion of Elvish Welfare. Ron, your treasurer. Harry, your secretary. Quote. So you might want to write down everything I'm saying now. (laughs) That's an iconic Hermione moment. (laughs) I love that. But in fiction, as in life, writing wrongs that are the result of an entrenched system is difficult. To paraphrase Upton Sinclair, it's difficult to get someone to understand something when their stomach depends on not understanding it. The house elves cook, they clean, they provide all of the food for Hogwarts. Who's going to do this? Right. Here's what Hermione's up against. Many, 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 many people have not even thought about this. Now they're being asked to cook their own food, maybe? Like, they're being asked to put themselves out for a system that they have never even thought about. Right. And this is difficult. Hermione says, I've been researching it thoroughly in the library. Elf enslavement goes back centuries. I can't believe no one's done anything about it before now. Ron says, Hermione, open your ears. They like it. They like being enslaved. A brutal look for my guy, Ron. Horrible look for Ron. Let's ask the magically. He's not alone, but a horrible look. He is in the majority, I would say. Certainly, right? Listen. I don't know how you ask a creature that is magically enslaved what their opinion is on slavery and think that you can get anything like an unbiased answer or even an educated answer. The elves aren't even educated about it because they can't be educated because they're magically enslaved. Tough look for Ron in this moment. Man, There's a tap at the window. Hedwig's back. And she has Sirius's reply. I'm flying north immediately. This news about your scar is the latest in a series of strange rumors that have reached me here. If it hurts again, go straight to Dumbledore. They're saying he's got Mad-Eye out of retirement, which means he's reading the signs, even if no one else is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Such a fascinating line because, of course, Dumbledore doesn't know that Barty is impersonating Moody, but also that idea of why he maybe wanted Moody there in the first place right. is interesting to think yeah. about. I'll be in touch soon. My best to run and Hermione. Keep your eyes open, Harry. Is Harry relieved in this moment that his guardian is coming to help? Is he relieved that he's heard from Sirius at last and that he knows after his worrying that Hedwig is also okay? He is not. He is furious with himself for feeling the need to, quote, blab about a bit of pain, a bit of discomfort. This is a costly perspective shift, a costly expanding horizon for Harry. It's the kind of thing, the kind of moment that will make him somebody who's already ill-inclined to share ominous information with adults to tell people when he's seeing something concerning in his mind. This is going to be a big deal (laughs) moving forward. Harry's also cruel to Hedwig in this moment, which is not okay. He's very— Be better, Harry. Not great to Hedwig. Man. Hedwig, much to her credit. Yeah. Saucy. Slaps him on the head with her wings and then shows him the tail the next day. That's it. Saucy to my guy who, I have to say, I haven't gotten his manners are not great, Harry Potter. Some please and thank you. I agree. Goes a long way. I agree. Harry, in this moment, despondent, goes up to bed, doesn't want to be around people. And the chapter concludes with another 
agonizing but beautiful small little link between Harry and Neville in a chapter and a series full of them. Quote, the dormitory was completely silent. And had he been less preoccupied, Harry would have realized that the absence of Neville's usual snores meant that he was not the only one lying awake. I love that. Love those links. Chapter 15, Beaubaton and Durmstrang. It's been a few weeks since Mad-Eye Barty's extremely off-the-top-rope opening lesson to the class. And the class, is, as you'd expect from that opener, is demanding. And it gets even more so with his announcement that he'll be putting his students under the imperious curse. You know? So they could become familiar with the effects. Totally normal stuff, guys. No larger insidious reason at all. Just a dark wizard putting kids under the Imperius curse. Normal. Really chill stuff. Routine. Hermione says, but you said it's illegal, Professor. (laughs) (laughs) Dumbledore wants you taught what it feels like, said Moody. If you'd rather learn the hard way when someone's putting it on you so they can control you completely, fine by me. You're excused. Off you go. Anyway, the Imperius curse caused the ministry, as Mad Eye Barty explained earlier, a lot of trouble. Very difficult to figure out who was who. During the first Wizarding War, Death Eaters had fully infiltrated the ministry. In addition to the outright followers of Voldemort, they were the numerous wizards and witches who were acting under the curse. Who was guilty? Who was a victim? That stuff was impossible for the ministry to sort out. When Harry is. Placed under the curse after an astonishing bit of gymnastics from Neville. Yeah. (laughs) Harry feels wonderful. Feels great. It feels great not thinking. Quote was the most wonderful feeling. Harry felt a floating sensation as every thought and worry in his head was wiped gently away, leaving nothing but a vague, untraceable happiness. This is almost like the opposite of like how a Dementor makes you feel, where all your worries, all your doubt and dread is washed up. Unlike his classmates, though. Harry actually has some success here. He manages, incompletely at first, but he manages to fight the effects. Moody, he hears Moody like in his brain, like an yeah. echo in a deep chamber, telling him, jump up on the desk. And Harry's mind is pushing back. Why? Why would I do that? It seems like a silly thing to do. To the point where he ends up jumping and trying to stop himself from jumping at the same time. Sickening pain in his knees, calling him to. Look at that, you lot. Imposter Moody shouts, Potter fought. He fought it, and he damn near beat it. We'll try that again, Potter, and the rest of you pay attention. Watch his eyes. That's where you see it. Very good, Potter. Very good indeed. They'll have trouble controlling you. (laughs) Bardi Moody then puts Harry through the exercise, a.k.a. the imprisonable offense, four times until he can fight it completely. This is wild to think about. In theory, now we know ultimately Voldemort wants to get Harry into the graveyard use his blood, and then discard him forever. But in theory, Voldemort might at some point need to control Harry. Right. Why is Voldemort's main guy teaching Voldemort's main threat to fight this essential weapon, one of the most lethal and devastating weapons in a sorcerer's arsenal? For Harry, of course, this is an expanding horizon because Imposter Moody is right. It's one thing to hear about something and another entirely to experience it firsthand. Now, Harry does know what he'd be facing. And we would be derelict not to mention, he knows what he'd be doing to someone else. Use it, he does. Which he will do. (laughs) (laughs) And quickly, another serious note here. Harry's attempt to dissuade Sirius failed miserably. Of course. We get an iconic, nice try, Harry. (laughs) Reply from Sirius, which is wonderful. He's back. And Harry does have to admit that knowing Sirius is close feels good. 
he tells Harry to not only use Hedwig. And Hermione explains, well, yeah, of course, she'd be too conspicuous. Another small but notable horizon here for Harry and co, realizing that their correspondence can be tracked. The way that they're communicating can be watched. This will be huge in Order of the Phoenix. Finally, the students line up in front of the castle to welcome the delegations from Beaumatin. And I'm sure... <laughs> Their entrances are nothing short of spellbinding, displaying the wild diversity of magical practice and study throughout Europe. Aha! Unless I am very much mistaken, the delegation for Bobaton approaches, Dumbledore says, and the students look into the sky and see something huge in the distance. It's a dragon, says one. It's a flying house, says little D. Creevy. Not quite. In the book, as the gigantic black shape skimmed over the treetops of the forbidden forest and the light shining from the castle windows hit it, they saw a gigantic powder-blue horse-drawn carriage the size of a large house My goodness. soaring toward them, pulled through the air by a dozen winged horses, all palominos and each the size of an elephant. The Bobaton students emerged from the giant coach pulled by giant horses alongside their giant, technically half giant, headmistress, Madame Maxine. She's the same size as Hagrid. Now, maybe it's because he's used to Hagrid, but Harry thinks this woman seems even more unnaturally large. And that sound you just heard is Hagrid's Bubba Tuber spurting uncontrollably. <laughs> Bobaton students come dressed in blue silk robes, with some with shawls and scarves wrapped about their heads. Maxine's enormous steeds require a strong hand and vast quantities of single malt whiskey. Sounds like you. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> and then Lee Jordan points at the lake and yells, look. From the book, some disturbance was taking place deep in the center. Great bubbles were forming on the surface. Waves were now washing over the muddy banks. And then, out in the very middle of the lake, a whirlpool appeared, as if a giant plug had just been pulled out of the lake's floor. From this emerges a great skeletal-looking ship carrying the winter-clothed Durmstrang students and their headmaster, a noted convicted Death Eater. Convicted! Yes. Death Eater. Was we in learn. jail. Convicted! Not even... Suspected. Convicted Death Eater, <laughs> Igor Karkaroff. From the book, his goatee finishing in a small curl did not entirely hide his rather weak chin. Harry notices his smile doesn't extend to his eyes, which remained cold and shrewd. When he says, dear old Hogwarts, not a flattering description, but he needs to get a prize pupil who has a head cold into the warmth. And he beckons forward the hero of the World Cup, in a way. Vic the Dick Crumb. <laughs> I love when Ron's like, Harry, it's, it's Crumb, it's him, it's Crumb. Ron, everyone knows. Yeah. Really bizarre moment when Ron is like, does he need a bed? Should he sleep in my bed? <laughs> it's like, Ron. I, oh my God. Don't worry about it. Can't, <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that next episode. That's just, Ron's relationship with Vic the Dick is complicated. Yeah. Jason? Yes. Never had a podcast like it. He knows, man. Knows what? Knows what it's like to be out there recording it. Recording what? Fighting the dark podcasting arts. But you can help us know too. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about horrors. Those of you who listened to last week's Ask the underscore Al post episode. Know that my favorite idea for a Harry Potter spinoff series is a show focusing on Aurors. The more I think about this, the more I really want it. Law and Aurors. <laughs> it's great. Dun, dun. <laughs> 
I want to learn more about these mysterious figures, but here's what we know so far. The name Auror is a generic job title in the wizarding world, like blacksmith or doctor or pilot in Mughal society. It's not just a British thing. And in fact, the American version of the Auror office actually predates the British one. In the U.S., the Auror cops were created in 1693 due to both the installment of the International Statute of Wizarding Secrecy the previous year and the urgent need to battle against Salem witch hysteria. The first president of Makusa, Josiah Jackson, established a force of 12 Aurors with two initial tasks. First, track down the dark wizards who had fled from Europe for the relative lawlessness of the states. And second, stop the scourge of the scourers, corrupt American witches and wizards who were involved in the Salem witch trials and hunted their fellow magical beings for personal gain. Mm -hmm. In Britain, meanwhile, Minister for Magic Eldritch Diggory, yes, a ancient ancestor of the vaunted Diggory family who served from 1733 to 1747, established the country's first aura recruitment program. And Hephaestus Gore, who became minister in 1752, is described on Pottermore as, quote, one of the earliest aurors. And interestingly, despite their reputation, aurors aren't typically destined for higher office. Before the events of the main series, only two aurors in ministry history had become minister of magic, Gore, in the mid-18th century, and Venusia Crickerly in the early 20th. More would follow, of course, as former Aurors Rufus Scrimgeour and Kingsley Shacklebolt eventually assume the office. Not surprising, actually, to be a cop and not rise to that level. You make a lot of, make a lot of enemies. A lot of people don't want to see you at the top level if you're a good Auror. No one wanted Moody running for office, that's for sure. Nobody wanted Moody around. A lot of angry people who are related to Dark Wizards. So what are those 12 American Aurors and the likes of Hephaestus Gore and Rufus Scrimgeour and Theseus Scamander, Newt's brother, who was head of the Auror office in the early 20th century do? It seems like the job hasn't changed that much over the centuries. Aurors perform a variety of tasks, all with the goal of combating the dark arts. Depending on the day, and again, this is all in my spec script, Law and Auror, <laughs> Depending on the day, they might act as police officers, soldiers, intelligence officers, and even, as Shacklebolt showed us, secret service type bodyguards as when they're assigned to protect Harry and the Mughal prime minister after Voldemort's return. Aurors are celebrated as magical experts, and they seem to need every bit of knowledge, cunning, and ability they can muster on the job. It's unknown how Roland came up with the name Auror, but my favorite theory is that it comes from the Latin oris, which means ear. Aurors are detectives, friends, and they have to have their ears to the ground. They also have to have their eyes sharp and their wands at the ready. Vigilance, my friends. Some dark wizards choose to fight to the death rather than submit to capture, and duels are common. Of the 12 initial U.S. Aurors, for instance, only two survived into old age. Tough stuff. Even powerful wizards were killed on the job. The 10 who didn't survive included Gandalfus Graves, an ancestor of the Auror Percival Graves. We learn about in Fantastic Beasts and Abe Potter, distant relation to a certain British Potter family. Wow. We don't know much about the specifics of aura training and recruitment. In Britain, candidates must have a minimum of five newts at outstanding or exceeds expectations level in the challenging core subjects. They must undergo background checks and they must survive three years of rigorous training and character aptitude tests after passing the initial academic hurdle. From Tonks in Order of the Phoenix, we know that some disciplines in training include concealment and disguise, stealth and tracking, and we know that Aurors must also be particularly proficient with potions and transfiguration. Gotta have that polyjuice ready, guys. Also from the order, we know from Professor McGonagall that selection appears to be picky, as she mentions that no candidate had been accepted by the ministry for three years. That doesn't mean anything. 
Those guys are a mess over there. Those standards are presumably relaxed somewhat after the second Wizarding War, as Harry and Ron join the Aura's ranks as teenagers. <laughs> what a look. Ron leaves the ministry after two years to help with the joke shop business, private sector always much more lucrative than government. But Harry continues on working to reform the Wizarding Police Force, and according to a post on JK's old website, he becomes head of the Aura office by his mid-20s. Well, Jason? Yes. I can certainly see why we're trying to keep them alive. Who wouldn't want podcasts that can burn, sting, and bite all at once? If only they could help spot foreshadowing. Yes. Because it's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Goblet chapters 11 through 15. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Yes. I'll go first. Number one. Harry and Ron, as usual, can't hack their divination homework. It's very tough. So they go to the trusty old standby. Let's make that shit up. Love it. Ron says, you know her. Just put in loads of misery. She'll lap it up. Harry's first prediction. Burns. Ron notes, yeah, you know, you'll be in danger from the scroots. But could this also be first task foreshadowing? Mm. Dragons. Remove the day of the week Monday and, you know. Let's try this thought experiment. Next, losing a treasured possession. Ah, the second task, in which Ron is the treasured possession Harry loses. Ron also mentions in his predictions drowning, as Hermione catches when she's scanning his homework twice, foreshadowing his role in uh, something underwater in the second task. Again. And then, stabbed in the back by a friend. Third task foreshadowing here, certainly. Great work here by J.K. And then also, in addition to the excellent foreshadowing, just a fantastic troll job against divination where they make up a ton of shit that actually kind of winds up being true. Number two. Some good Snape was a Death Eater foreshadowing. First, during the Malfoy ferret insert, he mutters something about my father and Moody says, oh yeah, well I know your father of old, boy. We initially think this is an or Death Eater beef, but it's really about Lucius not finding Boldy as Barty would have done sooner had he not been in Azkaban. <laughs> Then Barai Moody asks if Draco's head of house is Snape. Another old friend I've been looking forward to a chat with old Snape. Same thing here. And then, later, Harry observes that Snape is in a worse mood than ever these days. Quite a bar. <laughs> yeah. Most think it's because of Moody's presence and Snape once again not getting the defense job. But Harry observes, quote, Snape had disliked all their previous dark arts teachers and shown it, but he seems strangely wary of displaying overt animosity to Mad Eye. Moody. Mm. A little worried about him? A little concerned about him? Pull up your sleeve, Snape! <laughs> Harry has the impression that Snape's avoiding Moody's eye. Snape has no idea that this is Barty, who hates him for, in his mind, betraying Voldemort, but we can deduce from this that Snape would have worried about the real Moody downing his loyalty as well, but this time Dumbledore. Number three. When Neville hears everyone discussing the prospect of entering the Triwizard Tournament, he says, quote, I expect my grand want me to try, though. She's always going on about how I should be upholding the family honor. I'll just have to, oops. <laughs> Two things here. One, this is one of many Neville moments in light of his ultimate character arc that causes just a surge of the heart, you know, a tear to fall down your cheek when you read it. Because Neville will make Gran and the family proud very, very soon. Also, why is he saying oops there? He's saying oops because his foot, he sinks into a trick step. Foreshadowing. The step that Harry will get stuck in yes. later on in the book in the Egg in the Eye chapter, which is what leads Bardai Moody to take the Marauder's map, which he will then use to find and kill his father. 
Gotta jump the stairs, guys. Gotta jump them. Number four, some extremely painful, well, not exactly moments to think about here. Number one, after Ron and Harry briefly discuss entering the tourney with Fred and George, they revisit the topic in their dorm rooms. The discussion will be key later when Ron feels that Harry lied to him, essentially, about trying to get into the tournament. But here, what matters is what's in their minds when Harry allows himself a vision of glory. You got to imagine it into existence, as LeVar Ball would say. (laughs) Harry rolled over in bed, a series of dazzling new pictures forming in his mind's eye. He had hoodwinked the impartial judge into believing he was 17. He had become Hogwarts champion. He was standing on the grounds, his arms raised in triumph in front of the whole school, all of whom were applauding and screaming. He had just won the Triwizard Tournament. Cho's face stood out particularly clearly in the blurred crowd, her face glowing with admiration. She's kissing him now, her hands searching <laughs> out every inch of his body as she's tearing off his robes. Looking for his booba tuber. <laughs> Harry grinned into his pillow, exceptionally glad that Ron couldn't see what he could, which is a raging hard on. (laughs) This is not exactly how it will go, of course. Of course not. And then there's this from Dumbledore when he explains the tournament. We have worked hard over the summer to ensure that this time, no champion will find himself or herself in mortal danger, which is why the first task involves a dragon. Come on, dummy. Cedric dies. I know. It's first of all, just leaving aside the Uh, Cedric dies. The first task involves a dragon. The second task is underwater. It's like, what are you talking about? We've worked hard to see that no one dies. (laughs) I like that vision that Harry has, kind of like similar to what Ron sees in the mirror. Yeah. You know, it's a little really uncommon way for Harry to be thinking about himself. It's fascinating. Number five, two. Absolutely iconic moments in divination, but for very different reasons. First, Trelawney delivers what appears to be an elite self-own when she says to Harry, quote, I was saying that Saturn was surely in a position of power in the heavens at the moment of your birth. Your dark hair, your mean stature. (laughs) What does that even mean? Wait, hold on. What is that? What is the meaning of that? I guess that he's like, you know, scrawny and like scrappy. Mean is in average? I always took it as like small and harsh, kind of. <laughs> you know, it's pointy knees. Man, there's nothing worse than being insulted and I'm not even sure what it meant. <laughs> Tragic losses so young in life. I think I am right in saying, my dear, that you were born in midwinter. <laughs> like, you got to have these kids' birthdays on the record, Trelawney. Only the most famous <laughs> person in the magical world. And you can't even do a little research on this. No, said Harry. I was born in July. Ah, but is this as much of a cell phone as we think? Could she possibly? Let's, let's be as charitable as humanly possible sure. here. Could Professor Trelawney perhaps have been detecting this. the horcrux within when she said born in midwinter because Voldemort was born on December 31st. And then the other just exceptional divination nugget here. Quote, it is Uranus, my dear, said Professor Trelawney, peering down at the chart. Can I have a look at Uranus too, Lavender, said Ron. (laughs) Wow. One day soon, one, one. One day soon. Number six, notable Narcissa bit here. Ron says, it's a shame Draco's mother likes him and Harry insults her to Draco's face. But it turns out It's a good thing Draco's mother likes him in the eventual endgame. Her desire to be reunited with her son is what leads her to cover up Harry still being alive. Huge. 
It is huge. I Imagine mean, if she was like, Draco sucks. I don't really care. I know. Dark Lord, he's alive. Down here, he's breathing. He's got a pulse. I don't really give them that much credit because it was their only out at that moment. It was a clear out. You know what I mean? It's either, this is an amazing take. I'm just, so you don't, <laughs> I don't give them credit. It's like. You don't think they actually cared if Draco was alive. You're just like, our only chance is if he's alive. Yes. It's like they're drowning and there's a rope that is dropped into this storm. A bleached blonde. Yeah. And it's like, rope. well, either grab this rope or this is my life. <laughs> so it's, I mean, they were in a tough spot, but you know, I give the Malfoys zero credit. It's like they did one kind of good thing at the end. <laughs> and that's supposed to make up for all the shit they've done beforehand. Get out of here. Bellatrix tortured Hermione in their home. Yeah, that was. Literally get them out of my sight. All of them. Put them in Azkaban, all of them. <laughs> it's terrible. Oh, can't wait to talk about Cursed Child yeah. with you. Number seven. We learned that Eloise Midgen, dear sweet Eloise Midgen, cursed off her own nose accidentally while trying to get rid of her acne. Just had to say, after our recent Ask the Underscore Outpost, yeah. where we discussed Harry Potter spinoff ideas we'd like to I see, love that. thinking about young Eloise, we got to get a magical ER I love this With idea. Madam Pomf. I love this idea. Sweet Pomf. He's got no bones in his arm. Do 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 That was great. Thank you. Mal, hmm. you need preparing. You need arming. But most of all, you need to practice constant, never ceasing podcast vigilance. Kind of feel like we do. To it's be honest. what today's champion would want. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Bard-Eye Moody. Mad-Eye Moody. Take yourself back to the point in time first reading right. this. Mad-Eye Moody is riding high right now. You're thinking, man, this guy's great. It's finally, well, a dark arts guy outside of Lupin who gets it. It is complicated. It's extremely complicated. By the fact that he is abusing children. He's putting them what literally he did under. Malfoy was not okay, and putting them no. under the Imperius curse is not okay. So we do feel compelled to state that binge mode does not endorse not at all his practices. But he, he is, can't deny the impact he's having. Cannot deny it. It and it's also pretty tough to be like you could go to Azkaban for life for doing this. Now everybody line up, all thirty of you. I'm about to do it to each of you in turn. <laughs> the real key, the reason ultimately that we're giving. The House Cup yes. to Bardi Moody here is, well, first of all, if you take the whole story into account, of course, Bardi's plan going swimmingly at this point, but just great plan. Even absent that knowledge, just purely in the moment, Moody is forcing Harry and his fellow students to change the way they think about the world. Yeah. His intentions could not be less pure, but that ultimately doesn't change the fact that his lessons are having this kind of impact. If anything, long term, once they learn the truth, it might actually enhance the impact. Also, as usual, not a ton of other good choices. Just a lot of L's. ton of L's. Mad-Eye is, to me, the clear winner simply because finally here is someone who, in this moment, is saying there's darkness out there. There's right. evil out there. It can come into your life at any time. Will you be ready or will you be a victim? That is particularly key in yeah. light of the constant barriers between Harry and the truth. Yes. Even Harry's truest advisors and mentors and allies are almost always withholding something until it's a little bit too late. Always. Bardai Moody, it's quite the opposite. Too much of the opposite, but it is ultimately the opposite. It's somebody who is clarifying unambiguously what 
the stakes are. Yeah. That's important. All right, friends. The Imperious Podcast can be fought. And we'll be teaching you how. But it takes real strength of character. And not everyone's got it's it. It's true. Better avoid being hit with it if you can. That's what we told Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. But would they listen? We hope, <laughs> we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing chapters 16 through 20 of Goblet of Fire. Until then, remember, constant vigilance! Lemon drop. Come in. Uh, Headmaster Dumbledore, Mad-Eye Moody is down in the classroom. He's putting the entire class under the Imperius curse. Sorry, did you say something? I was reading, I was reading the paper. What did you say? Mad-Eye Moody is using one of the unforgivable curses on the student body. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. We, we talked about it. We hashed it out. And it was like, his whole thing is, don't they have to know about it? And it made, honestly, it made a lot of sense to me. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't given it a lot of thought.